Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Constantine Rush. Constantine is a PhD student at ETH Zurich. Constantine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Sam. Hey, I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation, which will focus on a couple of your recent papers. Both of them focused on RNNs. But before we jump into that, I'd love to have you take a few minutes and kind of share your background. How did you get started working in machine learning? Yes, absolutely. So actually, my background is mathematics. So I did my bachelor's in pure mathematics in Germany at the University of Bonn which is a kind of nice place for mathematics in Germany. Then I did applied mathematics for my master's in the UK. And uh, now I'm at ETH. I'm actually affiliated with the mathematics department here. And I'm doing my PhD in applied mathematics. And I'm focusing mostly on machine learning, of course. And also not only on classical machine learning, but also on machine learning for scientific computing, you know, to solve physical systems and so on. Yeah, so how how did I get interested in machine learning? Mm-hmm. I think actually two years ago, I didn't even really know what machine learning was. <laughs> so um, I really was interested, you know, in this classical applied mathematics, like doing numerics, solving partial differential equations, stochastic differential equations, and so on. And uh, I even worked for almost three years for the German Aerospace Center. And there I focused basically as a student researcher, and there I basically focused on this classical scientific computing problems, you know, as Mm -hmm. I said, solving PDEs and so on, and geometric problems. And then during my time in the UK, when I did my master's in applied mathematics, I did basically two really nice courses. The first one was about dynamical systems, so nonlinear dynamics and chaos. And the second one was computational cognitive neuroscience, which was super awesome. Um, And there was actually some kind of connection because in, in this computational cognitive neuroscience course, we took a look at you know mathematical models from neurobiology. So, for instance, at the Fitzhugh-Nagumo model, maybe you, you've heard of it, probably your audience had. So, it's it's basically the mathematical model of the firing of the action potential of a single biological neuron, and uh, you know you can uh, describe it more or less as a so-called relaxation oscillator. And you can do all this kind of mathematical theory around that, and it was just super interesting. And uh, so far, it had nothing to do with classical machine learning, you know, like classifying endless digits and so on. But then I started a project and I was searching for some literature about this connection between neurobiology and dynamical systems. And then I found a lot of very recent papers about dynamical systems theory in actual classical machine learning, meaning, for instance, using dynamical systems to construct architectures, deep learning architectures, RNNs, or feed-forward neural networks, and so on. And uh, I was directly hooked, and I I really liked these papers. And then, yeah, I I just started to read more, read more. I had uh, my own ideas. I tried a bit. And yeah, so that's basically my background. Awesome, awesome. We should maybe kind of establish the definitions. When you say dynamical systems, what exactly does that entail? Yeah, so it's basically systems which are time-dependent. So basically, you you have two kinds of systems, a continuous time systems and discrete time systems. And mostly in physics and biology, we use continuous time systems. 
where you, your time parameter is actually uh, an element of some interval, zero to capital T, for instance. And you look at so-called ordinary differential equations or systems of ordinary differential equations. And uh, I think they're quite famous. I mean, they're also used already directly in machine learning, like this neural ODE stuff and, and so on. And then there's discrete time dynamical systems where your time is this is more like an iterator. It's, it's not continuous anymore. So you don't have an ordinary, different, ordinary differential equation anymore, but you just have some uh, recurrent update of your so-called hidden state. So of the one you're propagating forward in time, basically. So you took these classes when you were working on your master's in the UK and your current work is focused on the same field. Did you come to the PhD with ideas for applying dynamical systems and oscillators to RNNs or is that something that you developed more recently? No, actually, I I already had these kind of ideas before I came to ETH. But I started more or less, I I had to pause them for a bit because I, I came here. And uh, I first focused on some more mathematics-based papers and problems. So we did some sampling-related kind of problems, which are only applied in scientific computing and not in classical machine learning. But uh, I, I was all the time curious, and I tried so many things, you know, in my free time on the weekend. And I had really good results. And so I talked to my supervisor, Siddhartha Mishra, and we decided to go a bit deeper and uh, yeah, really try to figure out what is the reason for these good results and what is it modeling at all and so on. Great. So let's start talking about the motivation for the paper. What's the broad problem that you are trying to solve here? Okay, yeah. So the motivation was that uh, for recurrent neural networks, so All we do is we suggest a new RNN architecture, recurrent neural network architecture. And uh, the big problem for recurrent models, RNNs, is that it's quite hard to learn very long time dependencies. And that means, okay, for RNNs, if you apply them to to data, it's always sequential data. So um, there's some kind of sequential interdependencies in, in your underlying data. And for, for instance, if you have interdependencies for a long range, so for instance, at the beginning of your sequence, you have important information, which is needed at the very end in order to classify the sequence, for instance, correctly, that we would call a, a long time dependency. And now it also depends on how long this dependency is, of course, right? So RNNs are typically very good for sequence length of 100, 200. If you go to a thousand, it's already super hard and uh, not mentioning doing 10,000 or whatever. And uh, the problem behind that is basically the way you train your recurrent neural network. So what you do is you use backpropagation through time where you basically unfold your RNN in time and you backpropagate the errors back in time, more or less. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, if you would write down the full gradient, you're interested in computing then you would see that there is one term, which is basically just the influence of a hidden state from a previous time, let's say at time k, on some hidden state at a later time, let's say a hidden state n. So it's, it's basically partial derivative of your hidden state uh, with respect to this hidden state of the previous time. And now if you look at this term and you basically apply the chain rule all over again, 
you will have a long product and this product has basically n minus k plus one factors in it. And so if you if you imagine if on average these factors are a bit less than one, let's say they are 0.9, then it's basically just 0.9 to the power of n minus k plus one. And if n minus k is very long, very big, then you just go to zero exponentially fast or you go to infinity if it's a bit bigger than one on average, right? If it's like 1.1 .1 on average, then you explode. And so this is called the vanishing and exploding gradient problem because exactly of that. And it may sound, well, okay, then just stabilize this gradient in some way, mm -hmm. but it's actually not that easy. So of course, if, for instance, if you consider your recurrent model as just the identity, right, then your gradient will just be the identity matrix. Mm -hmm. Great. Now we're super stable, right? But we learn nothing basically. Right. And, and so that's the point. So basically it's, it's two-folded. On the one hand side, you want to have gradient stability. So the gradient doesn't blow up or vanish. But at the same time, you also want to be expressive, that you can learn actual interesting data, which the identity map won't be helpful for, right? We have had some success with architectures like LSTMs and GRUs in addressing this. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So LSTMs, what they do, they, they use some kind of gating mechanism. And if you carefully write down the gradient there, you will see that you actually have a chance to mitigate the vanishing gradient problem. However, the exploding gradient might still happen. So the gradient can still explode for LSTMs and for GRUs. And there's a lot of papers where they have used LSTMs for long-range, long-term dependencies. And they kind of start to fail at a few hundred, uh, like, or 1,000. So if the sequence has like a length of 1,000, it's kind of tricky for the LSTM to learn that. But LSTMs are super expressive. So that, that mm -hmm. I can say already from my experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why LSTMs is still the most used RNN architecture. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the most used architecture at all. I don't know. They are quite popular. Absolutely. So you've got this, this exploding vanishing gradient problem with long-term sequences. There are things like LSTMs, but they're not perfect. And so your approach is inspired in some ways by you know, what you learned about the neurons and the oscillators and the neurons. Tell us how it connects to, to what you observed there. Yeah, absolutely. So our approach was really inspired by neurobiology. As I said before, if you take a look at the dynamical systems, which model this, this kind of firing of the action potential, you have this kind of oscillatory behavior, right? It's, it's actually mm -hmm. a relaxation oscillator where you basically accumulate your stimulus. And then if you surpass a certain threshold, you just fire and then you relax. And so you have this periodically, this, this oscillatory behavior more or less. Mm -hmm. And you see also this kind of oscillatory behavior if you, for instance, consider full parts of the brain, for instance, the hippocampus. There people call it, I mean, I'm not a neurobiologist, so I can just tell you what I read and they call it also um, hippocampal oscillations. And you can, mm. there, there are actually very beautiful papers where they measure these kind of oscillations in vivo and in vitro. And uh, yeah, that, that was basically the, the motivation. So something which makes kind of sense in neurobiology, but we don't try to exactly mimic this kind of behavior, right? So that's, that's just the, the abstract essence. And now we just forget about all this complicated underlying biological behavior. And we just take the message, okay, using oscillators might be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what we did. 
And uh, I think if you if you think about oscillators, I mean, this kind of harmonic oscillators where you have some linear combination of sine and cosine as the solution, it's super stable, right? If, if your amplitude of the oscillations uh, doesn't blow up or vanish, it's perfectly stable. And also, I mean, if you take the gradient, you again have some kind of, if you take the gradient of sine, you have cosine and vice versa, right? And so even the gradient is very nice behaved, or you would expect that it's very nice behaved. And uh, coming from this neurobiological background, we were also kind of hoping that it's still kind of expressive, because if that's something you can find more or less in, in nature and in neurobiology, then why not try it, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we came up with this coupled oscillatory RNN architecture, which is basically a system of second-order ordinary differential equations, so second-order ODEs, modeling these kind of coupled oscillators, where we also have two additional controlling terms in there. So as I said before, if your amplitude goes to infinity or goes to zero, then we basically got nothing, right? So, so we have to make sure that they are also kind of nice behaved. And we can do that actually by adding some, some controlling terms in there, controlling the damping. So that means like over time, how much do you damp your oscillations and uh, a controlling parameter for the frequency of the system. And uh, yeah, in the end, it's, it's really just a damped, controlled and coupled oscillator. And uh, we discretize that with a so-called mm -hmm. explicit-explicit discretization scheme, an IMAX scheme, just to make sure Because we are not working with the continuous uh, formulation of the system, but with the discrete time formulation of the system, and uh, to make sure that we have all these structure-preserving behavior in our discrete time system now, we use some kind of well-behaved uh, numerical discretization scheme for ODEs, which is just this IMAX scheme. And then we come up with this discretized ODE, which we interpret as an RNN. The when you describe the oscillators as coupled, okay. what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so um, the system has uh, many dimensions, right? So basically, each dimension corresponds to one neuron in the recurrent hidden state of the RNN. And so, typically, for for normal problems, you use like 128 dimensions or 256 dimensions, which would mean you have in your. Uh, we are only talking for one layer RNNs right now, right? So you typically have 128 hidden neurons or 256 hidden neurons. And coupled means that the information from one dimension can go also in, in the other dimension. So that means basically the, the hidden weight matrix we have is not sparse or, or has any, any weird structure. It's a simple, dense matrix. That's it. Mm -hmm. And you say you have this system of of coupled oscillators, you write those as ODEs, and then you express those as an RNN. How does that last stage work? Is that a straightforward expression of the ODE as a RNN, or is there work or tricks that you need to do to, to be able to do that? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So no, it, it's, it's not, so at least to me, it was not directly totally clear how to interpret that as an RNN. And there are different choices actually to do. Because, for instance, you have something like a time step for your discretization scheme, right? Some kind of DT, which is just a small parameter. And the question is how to treat this parameter, for instance. Is it a hyperparameter of your RNN architecture? Do you want to train it? 
you if you want to train it, you have to constrain it in some way because it shouldn't be too big and it shouldn't be negative because you don't have negative time, right? You want to be have something bigger than zero, mm -hmm. but you also don't want to be too big. So there are actually many, many questions. And well, we went for the easiest first answer, I guess. We just treat them as a hyperparameter. Mm -hmm. And also our two controlling parameters I just mentioned are two hyperparameters. So in the end, we have an RNN with three hyperparameters, which you do not really need. So you can actually treat them as trainable parameters too, but you have to constrain them in certain ranges. As I said before, for instance, by using sigmoidal activation function or real U, um, because also these controlling parameters should be just non-negative or positive. Let's say they should be positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you have your system expressed as an RNN, and then what next? It sounds like maybe the next step was doing some benchmarking against existing approaches for RNNs? Yeah, not directly, though. So first, um, all I said so far was some kind of intuition that it might be stable, also the gradients might be well-behaved, but the, the key feature of our, or the key goal of our paper is actually to show, to mathematically prove now, that this gradient is actually stable. So we have two main propositions, you can also call them theorems if you want to, which we actually fully prove. And the first one is basically showing that the gradient can't explode, giving some assumptions. And uh, now many people, I guess, in the audience will be like, okay, assumptions, now it's not going to be met. And, you know, everything was garbage. But uh, in this case, we can actually check these assumptions that they are very mild. So we actually, we checked them for each experiment we did, and they were always satisfied during the whole training procedure. So it's nothing crazy. It just means that your weights of your RNN are not too big. I mean, in the end, if they go to infinity, then, right, what's the yeah, point of using this RNN then? Yeah, yeah. So, so th th that's a reasonable assumption. And uh, with this assumption, we can actually show that the gradient is bounded from above. That's the, the first theorem. And the second theorem was maybe a bit harder even to show. It's some kind of asymptotic uh, expansion of this gradient, which shows that we have some term. Some, so, so asymptotic expansion means that we have some expansion in some orders. And we choose, uh, in this case, to use the time step dt, which is quite small. And we had some expansion of orders in this small time step dt. And we can see that the leading order of this expansion is of order, I think, time step to the power of three over two, something like this. Mm -hmm. And this is actually independent of your sequence length. So it doesn't matter anymore if, if you have a sequence of length 10 or of length 10,000. This um, leading order term will always be there and will always be of the same order. So that means that the Wenshin gradient problem is actually mitigated for all sequence lengths, basically. And, and so to recap that part, Essentially, because you've got this specific form of RNN based on the coupled oscillators, you're then able to produce some closed form bounds on the um, the gradient. convergence of the of the gradient, and that requires some assumptions that you make. But and these are assumptions; these are they're not constraints; they're just assumptions and by observation, you've not seen them being violated in kind of normal use of this RNN. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe one more point, because it was actually quite interesting. 
So these two propositions we proved in the full discrete case. So for the real RNN, because, you know, if you go discrete, some wild things can happen. So it's, it's always a bit tougher to prove the discrete case and not only the continuous case. And uh, so that's actually the case of the RNN. And interestingly, we also did the continuous case. And for that, we only can bound the gradient from above. So we can mitigate the exploding gradient problem. But because we had this expansion in this time step, right? And in the continuous case, you go with your time step to zero because you want to be continuous in some way. We don't have this kind of feature anymore. So that's, that's really the mitigation of the Wenshin gradient problem is really a feature of the discretization and not of the oscillatory dynamics anymore, which I, I thought was, was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm still very curious how this, what kind of results you saw and how it compares from a performance perspective. Yeah, that's even more interesting. That's true. Because if, if you have a good theory, okay, that's nice, but it also should work in, in, in real life, right? Or we have things like LSTMs that, you know, we know how to use and they work pretty well. Uh, yeah. And so the question is, we've got, like you said, you, you've got theories on the bounds of the gradients here, but is it useful? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we applied it to many long-term dependency benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So the typical benchmarks, for instance, the first one, which I I really liked was, and it's already quite old, so it's the adding problem. And it was first proposed in the original LSTM paper, actually. And the it's just a synthetic sequential classification. No, it's actually regression. And the idea here is that you have sequences of arbitrary length and they are two-dimensional and the first dimension are just uh, uniform random numbers and the second dimension are all zeros except for two positions they're uh, set to one and these positions are chosen randomly also uniform randomly and they are uh, chosen in both halves of the sequence and now the goal of the rnn is basically to the output should be the two uh, random uniform numbers of the first dimensions at the position indicated by the ones in the second dimension. And so it's it's just adding them together. Mm-hmm. So the, they call it adding. And uh, the, the nice part here is that we can use sequence length of 100, we can use 1,000, and we can make it harder, harder, harder. And actually, we tried until a sequence length of 5,000. I think, actually, I've not seen that before in another paper. So normally what you do is you try 50, 100, 200, 500, something like this. Yeah. Some people go up to 1,000. And you can see that, for instance, LSTMs, they already fail at 500, 750. So they are not able to converge anymore. So they can't effectively learn this kind of problem. And uh, for corn, we actually had that even in the case for 5,000, you get more or less direct convergence, which is uh, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Any interesting observations in terms of computational complexity with this approach? Mm, or, yes. Or efficiency? Yeah. So efficiency. Yeah. The, the question is in, in this in this task, actually, how long do you try? So how long do you let the RNN model learn, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm saying LSTM fails for 500, it doesn't mean if you do maybe a million iterations, learning steps, it might might converge. Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the interesting part really was here that you need maybe, I don't know, in, in terms of hundreds, we needed maybe 10 of them. And, and we tried LSTMs at least for 
600 hundreds, so for 60,000 uh, learning steps, and it did not converge at all. And also the other important architectures like this exponential RNN, which is basically some kind of unitary RNN, which comes from the idea that you want to constrain your hidden-to-hidden -hidden structure. And uh, all, all these kind of famous architectures, they did not work so well, especially in the very, very long case. So that was actually quite nice. But of course, it's just a synthetic test, right? It's just a synthetic benchmark. So maybe no one cares about this in the end. So you have to try more real-world data, of course. And maybe a second one, which was quite interesting, was something like, and that's not a long-term dependency task anymore. Because what I said at the very beginning that, okay, you want to have great instability, you want to learn long-term dependencies, but you also want to be expressive, right? You want to yeah. learn complicated problems. And so we tried this task from, uh, it's basically human action recognition. It's basically on a smartphone with the sensors uh, measured six different activities like standing up, walking, running, something like this. And the idea is that you have some time series measured from your sensors over time on your Samsung S3, I guess, was it? And uh, so in the end, you want to classify based on these action time series what the people have done. And even there, we got extremely good results. I mean, it's not a huge benchmark, so it's hard to say it was outperforming everything what is out there, but it was at least outperforming everything we were aware of. So all, all the papers who have done that, we were outperforming them, which was yeah, quite nice. Awesome, awesome. And you, you're working on a follow-on paper to the corn paper. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so the follow-up is called uh, Unicorn, <laughs> um, but, but with a double N in the end, so it's really like a neural network. Uh -huh. And uh, it stands for Undamped Independent Controlled Oscillatory RNNs. Uh -huh. it, it was kind of chosen such that we have this kind of <laughs> nice unicorn name, you know. So the idea here is that instead of using coupled oscillators, we first uncouple them. And uh, so basically... If you have heard of this independent RNN, mm -hmm. where they instead having a hidden-to-hidden -hidden weight matrix, which is just the full hidden dimensions, time hidden dimensions, dense matrix, you just have a vector and you just multiply it. So then you don't have any interconnection between the different neurons anymore, between the different hidden neurons, or in terms of dynamical systems, you don't have any interconnections between the different dimensions. So in the end, what you do is you just solve for each dimension, you solve an independent system. You don't even have to do it on the same computer. So and that, that was one of the points. So you can, can solve one dimension on, on this computer and another dimension on the next computer. Mm -hmm. And because of this kind of independency, and we are undamped, so we don't have some damping term in there anymore, we can show that this system is actually a Hamiltonian system. And uh, if you discretize these kind of systems with some symplectic integrators from Hamiltonian mechanics, so, so people in molecular simulations are very interested in that because they model basically everything with Hamiltonian systems. And uh, so the numerics to use here is so-called uh, symplectic integrators. And you can show that you more or less end up, if you integrate them, with the discrete time Hamiltonian, which is quite close to your actually continuous time Hamiltonian. And the nice feature of Hamiltonian systems is that they are invertible in time. And that means now that, for instance, if you train it with backpropagation through time, as I said, right at first you propagate forward in time your input, 
and then you have at the end some output and then for back propagating you propagate this error back in time and for that you have to store each hidden state at every time and so you can back propagate but in this case because it's invertible in time you can just store the last hidden state and reconstruct these hidden states based on the last hidden state because it's perfectly invertible in time mm -hmm. and so you kind of have the same memory efficiency like in neural ODEs with the nice feature that you don't have to go continuous because for standard neural ODEs, it's only true if you're going with your time step to zero, which can be very expensive. And uh, I mean, on a digital computer, you can't go basically to zero, right? You always have some rounding errors and so on. And uh, here we don't have any problem anymore. We can even use the time step of 0.1 and it's still perfectly invertible. And so, yeah, it, it scales just perfectly. It's very memory efficient. And on top, because we have this kind of independencies, as I said before, we don't have to train it on the same computer. And uh, that makes a lot of sense if you use it on GPUs directly, where you basically have an independent thread, where you don't even need a thread. So it can be even threads of different blocks, which cannot communicate with each other. And uh, you can just train each independent dimension on an independent thread. And just in the end, add everything together. And this is extremely fast. So oh, yeah. I actually did an experiment. And we have some, some really efficient code on GitHub already. You can check it out if you're interested in it. It's directly implemented in CUDA. So it's of course, it's using PyTorch. But it's some CUDA extension where we really do this kind of independent threading. And uh, maybe it's interesting to hear, but on, on my local GPU, I had a speedup of one epoch on sequential MNIST took me like half a day on the GPU using PyTorch for a three-layer unicorn, for instance. And with this CUDA extension, by really using this kind of independency, I got a speed up from half a day to half a minute. Oh, wow. Which was crazy. Wow. Wow. And so how is the expressivity of the RNN impacted by the independence? Yeah, good question. Yeah, we did some benchmarks. So one of them, the problem for expressivity is that you, you know, for gradient stability, you can formulate it mathematically. You can say, okay, it should be in this and this range mm -hmm. and it shouldn't blow up or go to zero. You can write it down. There's no problem with that. But for expressivity, what's the mathematical formulation of expressivity? So I, I don't know any. I think what's maybe the closest to it is some kind of universality, right? If you can prove universality, that's at least something you would need. It's absolutely not sufficient, but it's at least necessary. So if you can show some kind of universality, that's that's nice. Mm -hmm. But besides this, I'm, I'm not aware of, of any expressivity mathematical result. And so what you do is you classify it more or less by empirical data. So you use some some benchmark, which people think requires high expressivity. And if it performs well on that, you say, okay, it has high, high expressivity. At least that was my impression. I'm happy to learn maybe, maybe I was wrong and there's a nice mathematical yeah. formula for that, but I can't come up with, with one and I'm not aware of any. Mm -hmm. And so we tried it on, on one benchmark, which is called uh, IMDB, which is basically just classifying its sentiment analysis. So you classify yeah. movie reviews from this IMDB database, exactly. And they can be long and they can also have long-term dependencies, right? I mean, if, if one of the reviews would be, I don't know, some kind of irony thing, I really love this film and then in the end, or this, this movie, and in the end you say, I love it because it sucks. <laughs> so you, you have some kind of long-term dependencies, but you also have high expressivity because you do 
natural language processing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are way better benchmarks for that, I guess, but it's at least a start. And on that, we got quite good results. So it outperformed corn, actually. But we have to say we are using two layers for that. And for corn, we are only using one layer. Yeah. So it could also be a layer thing. But for this independent unicorn, you can't use one layer because then you really have no interdependencies. And you also mm-hmm. struggle a lot. So this, this interdependencies, you still have them, but they come from the input to hidden matrix. And so you basically um, delay them by one layer. Yeah. So, so you need at least two layers to have some kind of interdependencies between the right. hidden neurons. So. Okay, awesome. Uh, where do you see this research going next? My personal big goal is to, so far what we did was we have some kind of crate instability, which is great. We can learn long-term dependencies, but there's a reason why people use LSTMs um, all the time because they are just so expressive. For instance, if you try something like uh, this PTB, Pantry Bank language modeling task, where, for instance, you have some Wall Street articles, I guess, and the char level would be that you read in the sequence of, of the words, of the characters, and you want to predict the next character basically in the sequence. I mean, as, as humans, we are quite good in that, I guess. I mean, if I would say to see the, and then we'll say, okay, the next there comes an S to see this, for instance. Yeah. So for us, it's, it's quite easy to do maybe, but for RNNs, it's quite hard, especially if they're not expressive. And mm-hmm. if you're honest and you try all these more or less famous long-term dependency RNNs, they are not performing very well. So if, if, you, if you take a look at the metric they use, then it's all the time way worse than LSTMs. So XRNNs are worse, our corn is worse, our unicorn is worse. Mm. All these kind of nice RNNs, they suffer from limited expressivity. I, I just want to be so honest, right? So I'm not saying that corn is like the best thing out there. It's a silver bullet, use it all the time. No, there's a real use case for this. This is long-term dependencies. But if you do like high, crazy um, uh, expressivity tasks, where you don't require long-term dependencies, then don't use it, basically. And so the idea is that LSTMs are very strong in that, but they suffer from not being very good at learning long-term dependencies. To have something, you know, which kind of bridges these two things, which kind of connects these two things. So something which has good, can learn long-term dependencies very efficiently, but at the same time has high expressivity. And uh, actually, we are working on something like this. We are working with a group in Berkeley uh, right now. And uh, well, maybe maybe in a few months, you know, we will publish it. And then, exciting news. Yeah, yeah. Then there will be some good news. Uh, I'm, I'm really motivated. I'm really thrilled about this project. It's working really good. And uh, yeah, that would be my ultimate goal in, in this kind of RNN community. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, Constantine, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're working on. Yeah, no worries. It was a pleasure being here. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.